Welcome to this week's episode of Torah Conversations, where we discuss the weekly Torah portion read in synagogues all over the world from a messianic and Christian perspective for Christians to connect with the Jewish roots of their faith. I'm your host, Frank. This week, we're going to be discussing the portions of Ahremot and Kedoshim from Leviticus 16 to 20. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up and read it with us. I pray the Holy Spirit will touch your heart and change your life. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Torah Conversations, where we discuss the weekly Torah portion read in synagogues all over the world from a messianic and Christian perspective for Christians to connect with the Jewish roots of their faith. You can listen to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major platforms. Visit our website, torahconversations.com, and connect with us on Instagram, which is Torah Conversations, for more interactions. Well, this week is the Holy of Holies. We've been going through the tabernacle. We've gone through the sacrifices, the offerings. And we've gone through the laws concerning purification. And now this week is the Holy of Holies because we're talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the only time of the year when the high priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sin of the whole nation of Israel. And it's this glory that we can have access to every day in our lives. It's mind-blowing. So I can't wait to get into this portion, but first, my guest, David Guler. Hello. (laughs) Regular returning guest. It's really good to have you again, David. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to join. Every time you you ask me to join, I'm like, Yay! <laughs> well, I'm really excited to uh, have you as well. Like I said, I enjoy all guests, but some guests I just particularly enjoy having on, and you're one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> but how is it going in Israel? I heard that you guys are more, um, how do I say, free, <laughs> let's say. Well, yeah, now we can go without masks outside which yeah. is kind of hard because now you need to put a mask inside. And when you go outside, you need to remember to remove your mask and then to put it on again, which is right. kind of hard for me. I just keep the mask on <laughs> like right, right, every time right. I go out. But anyway, yeah, yeah it's, it's really cool. Like, you actually feel like people getting out and, and feeling like everything is back, getting back to normal in a way. Yeah. Um, you, you really see it in restaurants and in places which were open really just late, like mm. recently. Uh, it's really cool. Right. It's how like people are just enjoying and having their time like uh, they used to. Uh, mm. It's uh, kind of weird, actually. You know, yeah. we, we had like you, you could hear like we're gonna have this for years to come and everything, but I don't know. It makes you kind of suspicious. <laughs> it's too good to be true. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw this Instagram story of a friend who lives in Israel. She was saying that she keeps forgetting that she doesn't have to wear a mask anymore. And it it was really hot a couple of days ago when Israel was 
caught in a heat wave yeah and it it, it didn't help that she forgot that she didn't have to do this anymore <laughs> so it took it, it, it took um she so she was wearing a mask so it, it took her a while before she realized oh yeah i don't have to wear a mask anymore nice. <laughs> so, so she she took it <laughs> off and um and it helped a little bit it's like we forget we're afraid you know yeah yeah well that's the thing you see when when you're so used to being in bondage you kind of forget what it's like to be um to have freedom mm -hmm. just like you know israel in egypt <laughs> you know you don't know that this freedom is a part of you and it's it's available and it's like people saying that it, it took 40 years and a generational change um uh, for egypt to be taken out, out of, of israel mm. so that's so that, that that's really interesting but it's been really good it's been really good and we've been quite free more free as well over here because churches opened back up again recently oh that's cool yeah do you have any do you have any limitation on the amount of people or well we're not allowed to sing we have to um yeah so what happened was that churches in scotland i talked about this in the last few episodes but scottish churches won a lawsuit against the scottish government recently so wow. they can't shut us down anymore from now on wow that's brilliant that's amazing wow yeah so praise god and it happened just right around passover also which was just incredible yeah so it was on Easter Sunday that most churches opened back up again and we're still technically not allowed to sing and we're supposed to wear a mask indoors. I mean, we never wore a mask outdoors anyway, but in the church we had to wear a mask. But last Sunday I went to church for the first time in over a year <laughs> since the beginning of this pandemic, really. I've not been to a physical church meeting i've been to a synagogue <laughs> but not church which is another story but mm -hmm. it felt it felt really good and you know people just sang anyway just they, they just sang anyway of course why wouldn't you sing i don't understand this law yeah it, well exactly it's it's supposed to prevent droplets from being you know projected but then if you have a mask on it's supposed to you know work so obviously <laughs> okay i'm not going there i'm not going there <laughs> but yeah and, and you know the pastor says i'm not going to stop people from worshiping god and i'm not going to let the rocks cry out so everyone just sang and most of us put on masks in front of elderly and vulnerable people but you know afterwards after they've left at the end of the service mm -hmm. we just took our masks off and social distancing wasn't really enforced nobody really social distanced <laughs> so <laughs> it actually felt so good it felt free like so uh, really good and i'm encouraged because a year ago when we had our first lockdown most people held the view that it was our responsibility to close uh, to close the churches to protect people i mean we were really uh, i would say gripped by fear mm -hmm. and it was actually very hard to take a stance like that that, that uh, to say that we we cannot back down at this time it's it was um we need to step forward we need to step out in faith and just keep it open and you know just to be a light in this dark time mm. you know it was really controversial as well to take a stance like this but a year later this is the stance that majority of believers I know really? are taking. So it's it's really, really encouraging. Yeah. I mean, it's been a process also in our place. Um, our congregation actually went through a really uh, rough year because um, uh, 
we had this uh, place we rented for 20 years, which was really expensive every month. And, and you know that the expenses were really high and it made um, the, the congregation less free to uh, actually spend on important things like children and, and, and lesson activities mm-hmm. and so on. So we, we actually left the place, the building we had, like a few one month ago. And we went into this uh, interesting concept of life groups where right, we right. Uh, extended the authority of the home group and made it a small congregation in a way. Yeah. Uh, where we just, you know, keep regularly meetings and, and more than just Bible study, we just look for each other, you know, we just pray for each other. We, uh, we live like a family, yeah. like a, a, something like a, a, you, you, could, you could imagine this. In like back then with the apostles, where they were, they were really small congregations and really small number of believers looking for each other, mm. and, and still were part of this uh, bigger church. So yeah. it's interesting concept, I think, because yeah. the the elders in our congregation is really pushing for it. But uh, we're just looking, learning yeah. this new way of, yeah. of growing up as a congregation. That's but good. I think this whole year was was a really good process of purification for the for the believers. You could see like how God divided the faithful from the unfaithful. Like mm-hmm. he took the people which were really dedicated for him and 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 just sanctified them more. And the people which were, you know, they, they were they were not hot and not cold. They just sat in the congregation every Lukewarm. every yeah. Sunday or every uh, Shabbat and just looked at the at the worship and, yeah. and just listened and forgot everything after they got out. Mm-hmm. And now these people are just not part of the congregation. Right. I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, some of them are still. Some of them left. But mm. but you could see like how God just um, really divided and just uh, purified the congregation. Mm. And I think it's a process we've been through uh, this year. Yeah, yeah. It's like they left us because they were never part of us. Yeah. Sort of yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think the Lord is doing a lot in this season. The Lord, uh, I mean, I know the Lord never wastes one bit. Even what the enemy does, he never wasted any of it. And he works all things together for good. Yeah, so it's um, it's encouraging. And it's biblical as well, small groups, because early believers, you know, they met in the temple courts and they met in homes. Mm. It's, It's biblical. So, yeah. True. Yeah. Well, before we get into the portion, um, which I'm really excited about, we have a question from uh, one of our listeners, uh, which I really want to answer. Um, A listener from the United States, whose name is Ane, A-N-A-E, sent us uh, a voicemail from, uh, from our website with this question. Um, So uh, let's, let's play it. Shalom, Frank. My name is Ani, and I'm a listener from the United States. The first episode I listened to is the conversation you had with Galad Rosinger on Zab, and I was especially convicted concerning the conversation on leaven and for deeper self-examination during Pesach observances. I was curious, though. The Christian view of leaven is often quite negative, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5. And in the episode, you seem to relate this idea to laws pertaining to offerings in Leviticus 6. It's curious, though, that Leviticus 2.11 prohibits honey in similar circumstances. 
Yet honey often has positive connotations, as in deeper biblical truths. Also, in the Jewish Siddur, I find it curious what the Talmud brings down regarding incense in Exodus 30, saying that had one mixed with the incense the smallest amount of honey, nobody could have resisted the scent. Yet, why was no honey mixed with it? Because Torah says, you shall not present any leaven or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. My question is, what view do you take of traditionally Jewish sources of scriptural interpretation, i.e. Talmud or Oral Torah, and what are your thoughts on the relationship between honey and leaven? Thank you again for um, following the leading and prompting of our Lord Yeshua and sharing your insights on this podcast. I look forward to hearing your response. Wow. Wow, what a question. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, obviously a, a very well-planned and thought-out question. Two questions, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, just to explain the question for our listeners, Anne was referring to, um, uh, to, to, the, to, the portion, uh, to the episode with Glad Rosinger on the portion of Tzav. And in that portion, we, we talked about how the Mincha offering, the grain offering, must not contain leaven. And the episode was right before Pesach as well, uh, Passover. So we related that to the Pesach observance of removing the leaven out of our homes, which speaks of removing sin out of our lives. As um, And Paul compares leaven bread with malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5, and unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. But when... Um, when Leviticus 2 introduces the Mincha offering, it says that it's not just yeast that was forbidden, but honey as well. And yet honey is spoken of quite positively. So why was there no honey mixed? So really good question. Um, and then the second a second question was about rabbinic authority and the oral Torah. So um, do you have any thoughts on this, David? Well, I did some, like a small research on what the traditional Jewish or the rabbinic um, uh, tradition is saying. Yeah. And actually, I didn't find a lot of stuff on specific, on specific specifically on why honey was um, prohibited from the fire sacrifice to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, they, more, they, they focused more on, on other stuff, like the, the, the types of mincha sacrifice and yeah. also... Uh, which part needs to be divided to the priests and which part needs to be burned and everything. But they, they usually said like the things that we believe actually right now. They said that honey and, and leavened bread, they're, they're doing the same process uh, with yeah. the sugar and everything. Um, and also they said it's, it's a symbol for purification. The God wanted something pure. Uh, so he wanted the, the, the mincha sacrifice to be pure. Yeah. So this is what I found. Maybe there is some more, but... Um, it's interesting to see that they didn't focus on it too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about rabbinic Judaism is that it focuses on the doing rather than understanding why. Not that they don't wonder or ask questions as to why, but it's just not the most important thing for them. Their mindset is that when God says something, you just do it. And as long as you do it, <laughs> you're right with God. So um, my take on leaven would be, in general, leaven is not, is not negative in itself because even though Israel was commanded not to eat leaven uh, on Pesach, 
but you'll find that 50 days later, um, after Pesach, they're commanded to wave two loaves of leavened bread on Shavuot, on Pentecost, as a wave offering before the Lord, right? So in this case, on Shavuot, leaven is not only holy, um, it wasn't just permitted, but it was commanded as part of worship. It's it's positive, it's holy, and it's it's commanded. Not just positive, but more than that. So, um, so leaven in itself can't be good or bad, can't be just bad. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul compares old leaven with malice and wickedness. And in Galatians, he emphasized that a little leaven leavens the whole batch. So leaven, what leaven speaks of is that it's, is, its influence on and the ability to transform the whole body and how a tiny bit can change the texture, the taste of the whole batch. So if you have a little bit of sin, then your whole life becomes sick. If you have a little bit of false teaching mixed in with the truth, then you you quickly turn the whole thing into a false gospel and, and your whole community goes astray. So this is what happens when, you're, um, when your yeast is bad. But what happens when, you're, when you have good yeast, right? It leavens the whole batch also. So Joseph, uh, for example, was the good yeast that leavened all of Egypt because um, because of his faithfulness, you know, he blessed Egypt and caused Egypt, all of Egypt, to become a good leaven to the surrounding nations, a blessing, right, during the time of um, famine. So, but 400 years later, that leaven, which was Egypt, became old. It became a symbol of slavery, a symbol of malice and wickedness, and that leaven needed to be removed. So on Pesach, Passover, Israel was commanded not to eat leaven for seven days and remove leaven out of their houses, out of their lives. And likewise, Paul alludes to that when he says, uh, let us keep the festival not with old leaven, um, leaven with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this is what happens when we're born again, we're delivered out of Egypt, out of sin, and receive the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we become first fruits of the Spirit in Romans 8. And you know what happens on first fruits, right? We're going we're gonna to talk about this in the next episode. But you wave a sheaf before the Lord, which speaks of the harvest of souls. And then you sacrifice an ola offering, a burnt offering, speaking of uh, full surrender, right? Because you burn the whole thing, leaving only the skin. And then you offer a mincha offering, the grain offering, which consisted of flour mixed with olive oil, which speaks of the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. No leaven at this point, right? And then 50 days later on Shavuot, uh, Pentecost, you become fresh leavened bread presented before the Lord, holy. <laughs> this is holy. And this is what happens when, you, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, when the Holy Spirit fills you, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you become good yeast to the whole world. And we're going to look at it all. We're going to look at all these feasts in detail in next week's portion. You need to make sure that you tune back in next week. But, but this is why in Mincha, leaven is negative and it speaks of sin. 
And also you look at Mincha as an offering in itself. It parallels with Ola, which requires animals that are unblemished. So you have unleavened, unblemished, right? So, you know, they're, they're in parallel with one another. But leaven in itself is not negative. It just speaks of the power of influence and the ability to transform both positively and negatively. And in this case, we know it's, it's negative. As for honey, um, as far as I understand, it has the same effect as yeast, perhaps to a lesser degree. Um, like, like David said, it causes fermentation. It's a type of leavening agent. So, you know, that's that. Um, and also practically, it's, um, you know, it's, you, you wouldn't have that in a mincha offering anyway, because it needs to be offered at first fruits. And we just haven't read about it at this point yet. And, um, and also fermentation, um, as far as I understand, produces alcohol. So that would have been a bad idea for the priests anyway, uh, anyway because it would defile them because the priest needs to eat it. And, um, you know, a, a priest is not supposed to, was not supposed to touch alcohol. I think the interesting thing you said, it's that a symbol has meaning when it's inside a context, a specific context. You can't take a symbol and just generalize it and say honey is good and, and leavened bread is bad. You need to put it inside the right context for which it gets his, its meaning inside this context. Also, that's why Jesus was speaking in parables. I mean, like in, uh, uh, yeah, he just, he talked about like the, the seed in the, in the four kinds of, of uh, land, you know, and, and, and the meaning of this, this is the important part of it. The, the, symbol, the symbol just points into the real meaning, the spiritual meaning, which is hard to understand by itself. But when you look at something physical, something you know about, something you're familiar with, it's much easier to understand it. So I think it's important to all, always not take the symbol out of the context. Always keep the symbol inside the context. Yeah. It was given. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Second question about the oral Torah, a rabbinic authority. What are your thoughts on that? In general, or yeah. what do you think about this, honey? And uh, yeah, in general, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> um. Well, I think, like, they had, they tried to be sanctified and holy in, in God's ways. I mean, he, they tried to understand the Torah and the covenant, and they tried to keep it. Mm. And, and they really sick, sick God heart, and, and they wanted to please Him and to get closer to Him. But I think they, in some point, they misses, missed the way and missed the, the thing God was pointing into. I mean, yeah. the whole Bible is speaking about the Messiah, about a better sacrifice, mm. about someone who will be the perfect high priest, yeah. Malkitedek, mm. the one who will be uh, pure enough to give us an eternal sacrifice, which can just atone for all of our sins, yeah. like over a lifespan. Mm. And, and and they missed it. I mean, they just missed the point where Jesus came. And I think it's that's why in, in these times, they just separated into keeping the Torah and keeping the, and, and making the Israel, like the Jewish nation more and more and more uh, aware of just the commandments mm. and keep the commandments and make sure you don't miss any of the commandments. Mm. And in a way it's sad, but in a way it's also understandable when you, when you get the context of their, like how they live and, and when they lived in, in exile, they wanted to be uh, pure and not get inside the nations or live and, and, uh, lose their identity as Jewish nation. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I categorically reject rabbinic authority 
partly because Jesus did, but also because the rabbis approach the Torah with a completely different paradigm to that of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And, you know, we hear people say uh, it's the old covenant versus the new covenant, and partly because of Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians. But And, and, and when they hear old covenant uh, and when they hear law, they think, oh, Judaism. And when they hear Judaism, they think, ah, the, it's the old covenant. Um, it's, it's the law, but, but actually it's not the same. They're not the same. It's, it's, and this is something that I've been emphasizing big times on this show since, um, since Parashat Mishpatim, actually. It is that Judaism is not the old covenant. <laughs> and the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, is not Judaism. Because when you study the old covenant and the Torah, as we're doing now, all the laws and sacrifices, they, they center around the Ark of the Covenant. They center around the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and later on the temple, right? So the sacrifices are central to the Mosaic law, and the majority of it are, um, are related to that. And, and when you look at the Mosaic Covenant as a whole, it was about sanctification, and this is my working definition of sanctification. It is to be set apart to facilitate his presence. And when you read through the Torah, you would find that it involves three elements. First, it's the presence of God. And second, it's a worship order. And third, a way of life around it. So everything, everything is centered around the presence. It's first the presence then the sacrifices, and then the way of life around it. And just when you realize just how central the ark and the sacrifices, the korbanot in the Torah to, uh, were um, to Israel at the time, you would understand how much, how much of a big deal it was when Israel went into uh, Babylonian captivity. I mean, it was such a big deal because uh, it's, it was their identity, and all their identity was lost, right? So in order to keep that identity, they had to find a way to preserve the culture and the identity um, of this people. So it was a big deal. And we're not going to get into details as to how exactly rabbinic Judaism was developed. But when we look at the second temple, we see the appearance of uh, a role that didn't exist previously, um, the scribes. And their authority was incredibly high. I mean, you'll find that in Nehemiah, you'll find that in Ezra, and Ezra was actually the last priest in the first temple, and, the, and then the temple was destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant was lost. And um, when they began to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah, you'll see that Ezra returned as a scribe. And the role of scribes didn't exist in the first temple. It didn't exist in the Mishkan. But because of the exile, the scribes came along uh, because they needed to preserve their identity, right? And Ezra, as the last priest in the first temple, sought to do that because, you know, just think about it. Ezra, as the priest, he was the one that encountered the Lord's presence, the Holy of Holies, on behalf of Israel, all of Israel, that made sacrifices on Yom Kippur. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You know, on behalf of all of Israel. And then Israel went into captivity for 70 years. And then Ezra returned, having spent 70, having encountered the Lord in this 
ministry in the first temple, and then seventy years trying to 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 preserve scriptures and the identity. Right? Imagine how old he he must have been, right? And and very wise as well. So you know, when you read the book of Ezra, uh, the scribes' authority was incredibly high. And even higher um, than the high priest, you'll, you'll read it in um, Ezra 6, I think. It says, it was the king actually was saying to Ezra, he says, you're the one who's going to appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people and, and whoever doesn't observe the Torah and you're going to judge them and you're going to execute judgment on them uh, strictly and for death or banishment or confiscation or imprisonment. I mean, it was that, that was it was hugely different, you know, from how the first temple operated. I mean, they were given such a high authority. They basically ran this theocracy, right? And later on in um, Ezra 10, I think, you see how people started confessing to Ezra that they've been unfaithful to God, married foreign women, and yet there's hope for Israel in spite of all this. And but my question is, since when did this protocol exist? Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and the way that the people of Israel turned back to the Lord was beautiful. But, you know, at the same time, we see that this was sort of the beginning of the scribal authority. And over time, you know, after 70 years of exile, you, they don't know the Torah. They don't know how to do these things. And, and now they want to return back to the Lord now, if they have a question, who do you think they're going to go to? Are they going to go to the high priest? Unlikely, right? I mean, the priest probably didn't know what they were doing anyway to begin with. So they're going to go to the scribes. And later on, you know, the concept of schools and synagogues developed and that basically they operated separately from the temple. And then rabbis popped up, teachers of the Torah. So who do you think people were flocking to? right it was the rabbis not the priesthood so slowly over time the authority of the priesthood decreased while the authority of the scribes and the teachers of the torah increased right so you see this this transformation so throughout this, through this process the center of the jewish religion the jewish faith shifted from the temple to the schools and the shuls, the synagogues, right? So by the time Jesus came, the Jewish faith basically turned to a different religion, something that could basically operate independently of the temple, independently of the korbanot, independently of the, the Ark of the Covenant, his presence, which didn't really exist in the second temple anyway, which was a point for another time. But basically, God's own house was no longer the center of their lives. It's no longer about ministering to the Lord. It's, it was no longer about the presence. So when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they were like, hey, you know, we don't need a temple. We have, we have a fully functioning religion without it. So instead of a temple, we have synagogues. Instead of the Ark of the Covenant, which we didn't have anyway, we have a Torah Ark instead of the animal offerings, we can offer our prayers doing mitzvot. And as long as we're doing these things, we're, we're okay. As long as we're performing the mitzvot, we can be right with God. We can be justified, which brings us to another point. 
is that Judaism believes in sanctification before justification, whereas throughout the whole Bible, you'll see that it's justification before sanctification. The Mosaic Covenant, the Torah, was for sanctification, not justification. Now, if you listen to episode three of this podcast, I took a whole episode explaining explaining the Abrahamic covenant and justification by faith and the threefold promise that God will accomplish through the Messiah, which was a righteous nation permanently inhabiting a land with the nations of the earth receiving the blessing of salvation through it. So Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And it was because of the Abrahamic covenant, because of faith, God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And he redeemed Israel. And now they're redeemed. God says, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart. And here's how you're going to live. I'm going to make my presence dwell amongst you. I've brought you into a family. And here are the house rules, right? So faith needs to be walked out. Right? Faith without works is dead. Right, So it's justification first. And then because you're justified, now it's sanctification. Here's how you live. It's consistent throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. It's not the other way around. So this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 3. You know, He says uh, the Torah you know, introduced uh, 430 years later cannot nullify the covenant that was previously established by God, thus do away with the promise. But rabbinic Judaism basically flips that and makes sanctification to come before justification. And by the way, that was the leaven that leavened the church in Galatia. They were influenced by Judaizers who turned the whole thing into a different religion, a different gospel. So that that was the state right, of the nation of Israel when Jesus came. It was a state of broken covenant. And, you know, when Jeremiah prophesied a new, a new covenant in Jeremiah 30, uh, 31, he says, uh, he says, my covenant, God's covenant, which they have broken. I mean, this was more than just falling into sin and having to be covered by the sacrifice that pointed to Jesus. But, but it, it was a whole nation turning its back on the Lord and created their own religion, which is um, bad. <laughs> Which is also why God had to send John the Baptist, this old covenant prophet, to to turn people back to the covenant, back to the biblical Mosaic covenant before they could be ready to to receive the Messiah. Um, Because based on the condition of the nation of Israel at that time, they were bound to reject him. So, So this is why I reject the authority of the rabbis categorically. And at the same time, I don't reject all their teachings, all their writings. I read them, I glean from them, I enjoy them. Um, they're part of the history of of this um, of this uh, of God's covenant people, whom He has a prophetic destiny for. I know that God's going to grab them back in again through the Messiah, and there is coming a day when all Israel will be saved. It's going to be life from the dead, like Paul says, when all Israel cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All Israel, the, the entire ethno-nation will turn to their Messiah, the promised Messiah, right? And at this time, it, it's going to be life from the dead.
right? And it's going to be the time of resurrection. Abraham himself will be raised from the dead to see his promise fulfilled. It's a righteous nation, ethnic nation, inhabiting this land, the promised land, permanently under the reign of Messiah and the nations receiving the blessing of salvation through him. And it's going to be glorious. So, yeah, so I, I pray for them. I, I believe them. This is not something negative. I read the Mishnah. I read the Talmud. I try to understand their thinking. I mean, there are, there are a lot of good stuff. Some traditions are beautiful. I keep them for cultural reasons and also because I like some of them. But overall, I cannot accept their authority. There's just, there is not an unbroken oral tradition passed down from, uh, to the rabbis from Sinai. It simply doesn't exist. Yeah. Something you can observe, actually. Uh, just an interesting thought, nothing more. But it's interesting that the, the people most close to God, people who can listen to him, people who can read his word, who can really understand his heart, are the most authoritative in Israel nation over the years. You can see Moses. Moses was the highest authority in Israel in the covenant time. I mean, in Leviticus and Exodus and everything. And later on, Ezra, he was the closest one to the word of God. I just remember this place. I don't remember in which place, but when they read the whole Torah to the Israel nation, and there was just uh, like standing in like a few hours every day and just listening to the Torah, they were excited. And the one who were who were the closest to God's word and God's heart, they were the most authoritative, which is interesting. I don't know. It made me think about, um, yeah, why does why does it work that way? I mean, God does something did something already in the Jewish nation back then, but they left astray. They left, they went to the other, um, other path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, you know, I believe Ezra was um, one of the faithful ones. He was, you know, when, I mean, there's always been a faithful remnant among Israel that walked in faith. The, the, the righteous, the just shall live by faith, right? So it's, it's always been justification by faith. And, you know, even in exile, you know, their sanctification was lost, so to speak. Um, but I believe there was, there's always been a faithful remnant who believed that God will, you know, make this people righteous and he's going to bring them back to the land. So, yeah, and I believe Ezra was one of them. So, um, yeah. And yeah, so I hope this answers your question, Anne. So um, if you want anything clarified, feel free to write in or send another voicemail. Um, you know, I set up the voicemail function on the website four months ago, right? And Anne was was the first first one to send us this um, this voicemail to, to to um, to send us a question. Amazing um, through through this uh, to use this function. So so it's really encouraging. So thank you, Anne, for your support and encouragement. And all the rest of you, send me a voice message. I'm waiting to hear from you. But but yeah, let's let's talk about this portion, shall we? Let's get yeah, into the portion. Um, we have a double portion this week, double. again, and uh, this is the third double portion we had since we started this podcast. So it's um, it's the portion of Achrimot um, and Kedoshim from Leviticus sixteen to twenty, with um, chapter sixteen being the holy of holies um uh, talking about the uh, the day of atonement the yom kippur and then 
chapter 17 to 20 being the laws and statutes for all of Israel until um, until the end of chapter 20. So what are your thoughts on these two portions, David? Wow. Actually, when you invited me and told me that it's going to be... Uh, in Hebrew, it makes sense because both of the portions, like if you combine their names together, it goes like after the death of the holy... like. Of the of the holy people, I don't know of the the saints. So it's it's kind of funny because I thought the name of the portion was Achrimot Kedoshim, which doesn't make sense. It's two different portions. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. Um, so I think it's really interesting to see in these laws when you first read of them, you read them, you you like you you go like, okay, it's a list of do and not and don't. I mean, like. Okay, what does it? Why? Why do I need to read it? Why is it relevant for me today? But when I read it, like late, lately, recently, I really understood that you can see God's heart through these laws, through the way, through the things He says do and don't do, uh, because the things He focuses on, um, you can see a pattern in them. You can see God's heart. You can see that He is jealous. You can see that He wants that He wants that the Israelites will only focus on him will give all their best to him all their best sacrifices their best flo- their best stock um their their wives they their life themselves like everything to give to god and and he wanted to make them uh, holy in a way that they won't act and behave like the the gentiles and the nations around them that they w- they will act morally and they will really uh live in 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 the way god created humanity that in the way that God made Adam and Eve, he created them to live in a certain way, which was broken after the first sin. But he just tried to really show them what it's like to live the the good life, the the, the correct life he wanted, he had in his mind when he created the world. Um, I think it's interesting to see the laws in this perspective, because then you understand um, why he gave these laws. And, and everything may, falls into into its place, you know, it makes sense. Um it's interesting, but I think that the first chapter, the chapter sixteen, is really like the most extreme, intense chapter of this uh, of the portions. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing to see that. I actually I have a small thought. I wanna uh, just give you. Uh, there is this scapegoat uh, sacrifice over here. The the goat which was which all the sins were put on and was sent to the desert to die over there. Azazel. Azazel, exactly. Yeah. Which also, it's it's a synonym for hell, actually. Oh wow! In really? Hebrew, yes. Wow. That's interesting. That's mm, interesting to think about it because because it makes sense because this goat was separated from God. This mm. this this goat was separated from the nation God made holy. Yeah. And in a way, this is the same thing as hell. Hell is being separated completely from God, from His presence, from His. From everything that he is, yeah. he's not in hell because he's separated from sin and from death. Mm. So I just think that Jesus had to suffer the same fate as this scapegoat because he was the perfect um, uh, sacrifice. Yeah, he had he was he was the the chatat and the asham. He was the sacrifices which covered the sins of the, the nation. Mm. He was the olah, the yeah. sacrifice which was for worship and also for uh, for praising. Yeah. And also he was this scapegoat. He was the one who had to be sent to hell, to mm-hmm. be separated completely from God yeah. in order to be the, the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. Yeah. I think it's, it just touches my heart to, to think of 
how much did he suffer? How much did he, what did he went through? Like, what did he walk through when he, when he did the sacrifices? And now I understand why did he cry yeah. back then in the garden before he went to the, to the cross? You yeah. know, it's like yeah. his God, which is going to be separated from his father. I mean, it touches my heart to think of it. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And you just begin to think how a man who, who knew no sin became sin, right? It's like, imagine you've never experienced the weight of sin in your life. Wow. But now as a man, you're feeling the weight of sin of, of the whole world, right? Since creation until probably the new heaven and new earth, right? So, and all of that begin to descend upon you, right? I, I, I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. I mean, even that, even that in itself, I, I think would have crushed him physically in many ways. And then he he atoned for the sins, and he um, he himself went down to Hades. He went down to hell, and I believe he did. Yeah, you're, you're right. And it's it's actually part of the Apostles' Creed, right? Yeah. Because I mean, many people would consider that heresy today, actually. But but it's it's actually the early believers the early believers believed that Jesus went to hell. Not that he became sinful or took on a satanic nature or anything like that, but as an extension of, of the cross. And just like what happened with the two goats, right? Because, um, you know, actually, uh, let's read a little bit. We're, we're not going to get into every detail, but you, you have to, you guys just have to read it for yourselves. But verse seven, it says, um, Aaron shall take the two goats, two male goats for Chatat sin offering and one ram for Ola the burnt offering and two goats from uh, from Israel and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and verse 8 Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats one lot for the lo- uh, for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat that's the Azazel and then Aaron shall offer the goat, which the lot for the Lord fell, and make a sin offering, a chatat. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, and, um, and then, but the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness oh. as a uh, scapegoat. So this scapegoat was um, to carry uh, the sin of Israel away. It's it's what Jesus fulfilled when he descended and um, down to hell and took the keys of hell and death. And it's interesting that there's actually rabbinic tradition about this. Do you, do you know about it? I'm not sure. Yeah. So um, so basically, there were various traditions during the Second Temple period for determining whether God has accepted the sacrifice or not. The the, the intercession of the priest. So one tradition being that when the high priest uh, casted lots, uh, if the lot for the Lord came up in the right hand, that was a good sign. But if if the one for the as a Azazel came up, that was a bad sign that the Lord is rejecting the sacrifice. Uh, and also the menorah in the temple, you know, you, they would light them from the westernmost um to the easternmost so basically from right to left because the temple door was facing the east right so so basically um and the tradition has it that if god accepted the uh, the intercession of the high priest then the one um, that was lit first on the right would be the last one to go out uh, and also the azazel 
they would say they would tie a red strap around the uh, the horn of the Azazel, and then they would cut a piece off and tie that strap around the the temple door. And if God has accepted the high priest's intercession, then the strap would turn white. You know, as in Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So that would that would have been a sign that God had accepted their sacrifice and have, have had their sins atoned for. So according to the Talmud, this is a tradition. Um, you guys can look it up. It's in Yoma, uh, Y-O-M-A, 39B. You can Google it. But it says during, um, basically, uh, I'm going to summarize, during the last 40 years before the temple, the second temple was destroyed, all of these signs came up negative. I mean, we're talking about the red strap, and we're we're we're, um, we're talking about the 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 menorah. We're talking about the lot, right? All of them came up negative every year for forty years. So God rejected the sacrifice every year, according to Jewish traditions. It's interesting. It perseverance. Huh? God God insisted he to show them that they missed something. Yeah. I mean, Jesus died in 30 AD and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, right? 40 years in between. God rejected the sacrifice every year. <laughs> what, I mean, what are the chances, right? I don't think it's a chance. I think it's, it's meant to be that way. I mean, it's, it's not yeah. a coincidence. No, no, no. I'm saying. no. It's, it's, yeah, I think, I think God was trying to tell them something. You know, it's because there, there's already a perfect sacrifice that's done for them. There is a better way um, that's made available. So, yeah, so this is uh, the chapter 16 on Day of Atonement, um, Yom Kippur. But we're, we're not going to get into every detail, but I really want to encourage everyone to look at it. Um, but actually, I do want to just stress one point. I do want to mention one point. It's verse 13. And it says, you shall put the incense um, so the so the priest, the high priest, would take the incense and bring it inside the veil, and he um, put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the covenant. Otherwise, he will die. I mean, that's um, that's intense. That's intense. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's really. I mean, just uh, just imagine going into a little chamber and a little box, and then you would just die if you're not worthy, right? I think it 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 made sure that Aaron understood, and every priest, high priest, understood the weight and the and the, the importance, the significance of of their of their role in the in in the Jewish society. I mean, they were really uh, they're doing the most intense role. They had to be really pure and uh, understand all, each and every step they were doing. Yeah. You can see that our children were just died because of, of for rain or for strange fire. Uh, like they had to do everything really precise. And I think it's also, for me, it's a big grace that God just released me from the, from the duty to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm not obliged, obliged to do it every year. Yeah. I mean, now I have this perfect sacrifice, which died, which died once and for all. And, it makes me really thankful and really just, you know, I can praise God for every day because I don't have to do this something, this scary, like really scary thing. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not easy. It's it's hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and another point is that the general workflow 
of the high priest on this day it is to make the sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies and present the blood. So make the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, present the blood. Not just the sacrifice, but he needed to present the blood in the Holy of Holies. And of course, Jesus being um, being the great high priest and the fulfillment of the sacrifice, he had to uh, he had to do both. He had to shed his blood, go into the uh, to Hades to fulfill Azazel, but he would he would have also needed to go to the Holy of Holies, which is heaven, to present the blood to the Father, which which is probably what he was on his way to do in John twenty uh, verse seventeen, when Mary Magdalene caught Jesus. She probably caught Jesus on his way up, right? I mean, Jesus says, um, says, don't touch me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And here in Leviticus, it says, no one is allowed to be in the Mishkan while the high priest makes the sacrifices. So Mary couldn't touch Jesus at this point because Jesus still needed to go into the Holy of Holies, which is heaven, and present the blood to the Father. Uh, and until he's done that, it's not complete. So I thought I thought that was that was amazing. Anyway, we are running out of time. So um, chapter seventeen through twenty laws for the congregation of Israel. Do you have any thoughts on these? Yeah, you can see in chapter seventeen, God says something really interesting. He says, "Every goat, every stock you have, livestock you have that you want to kill and and just um, just kill, you know, and maybe for food, I don't know." Every one of them you need to bring as a sacrifice before the priest. Uh, it just shows how much God um, was jealous for their sacrifices, for their worship. He knew that they would some of the of, of the livestock they would kill. They they could bring it to demons and to the molech and to all the uh, false gods that were around them. So he just said, "Okay, guys, I I don't play games with you. You you have to do every every livestock you kill. You need to bring before me." Uh, this is interesting to see. And also in verse 11, uh, which is a really interesting verse, it's also um, it's combined with, the, with, with Genesis when God says to Noah, after, to Noah after the, after the, the flood, he just, he just tells him that the, the soul, the, our soul is in the blood. The blood is so precious. And that's why the blood can be the price paid for your sins because because your sins are so heavy are so um are so bad that you need something as precious as your blood and your blood is is an uh, not your blood but the uh, and pure enough blood is enough to pay for the price uh, it's interesting to see the roots and to understand it more because today if you will say to someone um yeah i believe that that jesus pour his blood for me in order to be sanctified and and to be and to give me a tone and to atone for my sins, he will look at me like, "Dude, are you crazy or what?" Because, because what? I mean, it sounds paganic. I mean, in a way, but but then you can go back to this place and understand the the significance of the blood and what why uh, God wanted uh, the blood of the animals to be poured out and 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 sacrificed. Mm. Uh, it's mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, of course, these laws apply to all of Israel, right? So next week we're going to go into uh, we're going to begin to look into laws specifically for the priests, but these laws for 
all of Israel, and a lot of them have to do with blood, right? I mean, it begins with slaughtering animals, and then, you know, eating the blood being prohibited, and then, um, and then about sexual relations during uh, the woman's period, etc. Yeah, uh, we don't have time to get into all these, but I I do want to encourage everyone to just take your time on these chapters because they really teach us a lot about um, about God first of all, but also how we have a new and better covenant that fulfills them. So yeah, anyway, thank you, David, for um, coming back on the show again. You're like you're like part of the Torah Conversations family now. Yay! Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, I mean, I say to people, if you're a returning guest, you've been back at least once, then you're part of the Torah Conversations family. But this is like your third time. So you're a close family member of the show, so I wish I could yeah. show the the listeners all the conversations we have on WhatsApp and everywhere, just <laughs> discussing the the point deeply. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy yeah. that too. I, I mean, I, I really enjoy that because when we go through these chapters, you know, you're confronted with details, right? It's one thing to just read through them and go, yeah, that's that's what they did, but it's another thing to study them systematically like this. And we're confronted with details that we we can't really avoid, and we can't just say, "Oh, it's not for us." Well, yeah, but it's it's there for a reason, right? So it's it's really thought provoking just to talk about these chapters. So we don't um, we don't have the full picture. So if you have any thoughts, guys, send us a voice message, just like Annie did. Whether it's a question or a thought or disagreement or whatever, send it to us. So just go on to TorahConversations.com and click the microphone button on the bottom right of the screen and just record your message. And don't worry, you can preview your message before sending it so you don't have to worry about submitting anything that you're not happy with. But yeah, really, really cool. But That's a cool feature. Yes. <laughs> If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major platforms. Visit our website, TorahConversations.com, and connect with us on Instagram. Have a great weekend, everyone, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.